Hello, everyone. Welcome to a Mighty Blaze podcast. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze was created in 2020 as a way to keep readers and authors connected during quarantine. Since then, the initiative has grown to include more than 30 volunteers, from producers to hosts and schedulers, all working together to create live-streamed interviews with new and established writers of every stripe. Best-selling author J. Courtney Sullivan's latest book, Friends and Strangers, has been praised by, well, by pretty much everyone, from the New York Times and Vogue to People Magazine, Publishers Weekly, and Kirkus. She's also the author of the novels Saints for All Occasions, Maine, and Commencements. And her book, The Engagements, is soon to be made into a film by Reese Witherspoon's production company. Courtney talks with a Mighty Blaze host, Jenna Payone, about navigating working motherhood, writing from different points of view, and the complex relationships that exist between parents and caregivers. So settle in and enjoy the conversation as I pass the Blaze torch to Jenna and her multi-talented guest, Jay Courtney Sullivan. Hello, everyone. I'm Jenna Payone with A Mighty Blaze, and today I'm so thrilled on our Frontliner Fridays, we have the incredible New York Times bestselling Jay Courtney Sullivan. Welcome, Courtney. How are you doing today? I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, we're so happy to have you. Thank you so much for doing this. We are so thrilled to celebrate your newest release, Friends and Strangers. It is awesome. It's such a good book. Uh, you. you know, one of, of many. Every time I read one of your books, I'm always absolutely delighted. I look forward to it. I get so excited when Thank there's you. a new J. Courtney Sullivan book out, and this one is no exception. So congratulations. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. We're going to kick things off by me doing my spiel on basically sitting here and praising you for 20 minutes. And then we'll <laughs> questions. So feel free to sit back, relax, and enjoy listening about yourself. To Wonderful. all who are joining us, thank you for joining us. Um, please enter some questions for Courtney in the comments if you'd like, and we'll try to get to some of them toward the latter part of the interview. Um, and she's just a delight. We we're already, we've already been chatting behind the scenes and this is going to be a fun time. So strap yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Introducing Jay Courtney Sullivan, who is the New York Times bestselling author of the novels Commencement, Maine, The Engagements, Saints for All Occasions, and her most recent release, which we're celebrating today, Friends and Strangers. Maine was named a best book of the year by Time Magazine and a Washington Post notable book of 2011. The Engagements was one of People Magazine's top 10 books of 2013 and an Irish Times best book of the year. It is soon to be a major motion picture produced by Reese Witherspoon and distributed by Fox 2000 and it will be translated into 17 languages. Saints for All Occasions did we lose Courtney? Nope, oh, there you are. <laughs> you were like, my ears are burning. I have to. <laughs> Saints for All Occasions was named one of the 10 best books of the year by the Washington Post, a New York Times critics pick for 2017, and a New England Book Award nominee. 
Courtney's writing has also appeared in the New York Times, Book Review, the Chicago Tribune, New York Magazine, Elle, Glamour, Allure, Real Simple, and O, oh, the Oprah Magazine, among many others. She is the co-editor along with Courtney Martin of the essay anthology, Click, When We Knew We Were Feminists. In 2017, she wrote the forwards to the new editions of two of her favorite classic novels and two of mine, Anne of Green Gables and Little Women. Those are my all two, all time favorite Aww. novels ever. So maybe we'll chat about that too. Yes. A Massachusetts native, Courtney now lives in New York, although maybe we'll, we'll update <laughs> her husband and two children. Her most recent release, Friends and Strangers, is an insightful, hilarious, and compulsively readable novel about a complicated friendship between two women who are at two very different stages of life. Elizabeth, an accomplished journalist and new mother struggling to adjust to life in a small upstate New York town, and Sam, a senior at the local women's college caught in a tug of war between ambition and a romantic entanglement that threatens her future plans. When Elizabeth hires Sam to babysit her young son, the two grow close. But when Sam finds an unlikely kindred spirit in Elizabeth's father-in-law, the true differences between the women's lives become starkly revealed and a betrayal has devastating consequences. A masterful exploration of motherhood, powerful power dynamics and privilege in its many forms, Friends and Strangers reveals how a single year can shape the course of a life. And it has received rave reviews from pretty much every critiquing outlet in the world. <laughs> the New York Times, Washington Post, Vogue, People Magazine, Good Morning America, Kirkus, She Reads, and more. And it's Jenna B. Hager's Read with Jenna pick for July. And it's still July. So still join in and read along with Jenna. Publishers Weekly says of Friends and Strangers, Sullivan's intimate, incisive latest explores the evolving friendship between a new mother and her babysitter. Readers will be captivated by Sullivan's authentic portrait of modern motherhood. Thank you so much for being here with us, Courtney. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was an amazing introduction. Thank you so much. I always feel so bad because they take a little while, but you are such an accomplished woman. You know, woman, I want everybody to know. And I'm sure Thanks. everyone joining <laughs> us today is, is well-versed. Um, but without further ado, let's, let's talk about friends and strangers. I'm so thrilled. Um, at its heart, Friends and Strangers explores this very unique and com complex type of female relationship, which is the relationship between a mother and her child's caregiver, which mm. is one of the most, you know, complicated things out there. And yeah. you yourself are a mother of two, and you've also, uh, you have a, a history with babysitting, from what I understand. And so you've been on both sides yes. of this relationship. How did those experiences, both as a mother and a babysitter, inspire you in terms of writing this, um, this book and exploring this relationship on the page? Well, just as you said, I've been on both sides of this relationship now. And so when I started writing the book, my son is, he just turned three in June, June 22nd. So um, I was pregnant with him when I started writing the book. And so, and my daughter is 16 months younger than my son. So I had two kids in the time it took me to write this book. Um, and, you know, that whole, <laughs> that whole sort of, you know, I, I've, I've told people that most of my books require so much research into lives that are really different from my own. And this book, um, there wasn't as much of that, but I think it was because I was actually living a life that felt really different from my own as I 
had my first child and then had my second child very quickly thereafter. Um, and so I felt like I was sort of learning things in my own life all the time. And there was so much to sort of mine. But so here's the thing with the, the origin of this book. Um, I think as a lot of writers probably have experienced, sometimes, you know, something happens, there's a moment, there's a conversation, whatever it is, an idea, and you kind of know you will write about it, mm -hmm. but it may not be right now. It might not really be the time yet, but you kind of put it in your pocket for later, knowing that it's something. And um, so about, I guess, eight or nine years ago, I was at Smith College, where I went to college, um, to give a reading from my book, Maine, I think. And um, after the reading, you know, I came out, I was walking to my car, standing at the crosswalk, and I'm just kind of, you know, thinking, it's like it had been 10 years since I graduated, and I'm back, and I'm, you know, speaking on campus, and so I'm having one of those moments where, like, different versions of yourself are kind of overlapping. Yep, past. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm standing at the crosswalk, and this huge SUV pulls up behind the wheel is this woman, Catherine, who's baby I cared for my senior year of college oh, and she had just moved from New York um, yeah. to this small town Sounds and we, yes and we really kind of struck up a friendship and she very much encouraged me to sort of travel down the path that I ended up traveling down um, very much encouraged me to go to New York to pursue writing and all of this so I see her and it's been 10 years I'm like oh my God, and I'm waving, waving, hello, oh my gosh, it's me. And she had no idea who I was. And so I, that night was telling a friend this story and she said, and she's a writer too. And she said, you know, that should be your next novel, right? That's like the beginning scene of your next novel. And I thought, yeah, I, I like that, but I couldn't exactly figure out what, how I would sustain it over the course of a whole book. Like, what would it be? And I knew what the babysitter would have to say but I wasn't sure do I want to write a whole novel from this babysitter's point of view because I've already written a novel from the point of view of college students and right. you know young 20 something and so um when I was pregnant with my son all of a sudden it did dawn on me exactly what you said that soon I'm going to be that mother you know when you're a babysitter it's really the ultimate job for a writer. And I have noticed that a lot of writers were babysitters um, because you're, you know, you get to like peer into someone else's world. Yes. You get to see what they are like behind closed doors and it's endlessly fascinating. And the more time you spend with a family, you know, the more you become sort of just like part of the background and, and you experience things, you hear things, you, you know, you are part of things. And so, um, Thinking back on when I was a babysitter and things I thought about mm -hmm. mothers and um, how different it is when it's really, you know, when your whole life is this child, not just a few hours a day or whatever it might be, as much as you love the kids you babysit for. Right. I just thought, oh, you know, this is an opportunity to kind of have a conversation with my younger self about the choices she made and mm -hmm and what she imagined this part of life would be like and what it's actually like. Which is so important because there's, you know, we're all, we, we've all gone through, like, like I think about, you know, being 20 and now being in my mid thirties and, and, you know, 
in that family space of it, it's so different from what you expected and you know maybe you thought you never would have it or you never you know you didn't make any plans for it so having that that featured of this this you know woman who who has been there and yeah. lived the life that maybe the younger one wants and Elizabeth and Sam like you know Sam wants to go off and and have these adventures and, and do certain things and I'm trying not to give anything away but <laughs> yeah <laughs> But it is interesting because, you know, you become, as you said, really a part of the, the furniture, you become part of the family, but mm -hmm. you're not, you're not a part of the family. And you do see, you have a wonderful op-ed that you wrote in the New York Times where you said, you know, the babysitter always knows. Everybody says, you don't know what goes on in a marriage, but a babysitter always knows. <laughs> you, you see it. Was it, now, was it weird to write? Did you, did you find that you had an easier time writing because you always write in multiple points of view and you do mm -hmm. such a great job of exploring different sides of different perspectives on you know these same these complicated thorny issues did you have trouble slipping into one woman's voice over the other was was elizabeth easier for you or sam which one uh, i'm curious if you struggled with one or, or found one easier well when I was pregnant, I knew that I, I wasn't really sure what Elizabeth would really truly think about new motherhood yet. Mm -hmm. um, or I guess I, I should say yeah. I didn't know what I would think about new motherhood yet. Right. And, um, and I wanted to have a really authentic, you know, version of that. And I think it kind of started when I was trying to get pregnant, which was a tricky process for me. And it was so. the first time that I, um, since my, since I was probably in my first year of college mm -hmm. um, that I went back and started like writing down what was actually happening day to day oh, and almost journaling. I, I wouldn't have thought of it as journaling, but um, but just writing down like these crazy things that would happen and that like, you know, fertility doctors would say and just just crazy things that I had never thought about or encountered before. And also that so many of my friends were going through these things and mm -hmm. and realizing at this age that um this relationship that women have with their own bodies that is like there's so much in our culture about kind of keeping things at a distance you oh. know um and but women are like like i always think about this is probably kind of a gross thing to say but i always think about like the um like the commercials for tampons where they're like here's this blue liquid and you're like what is that blue you're liquid like when you're a kid right you're like what is that that's interesting yeah. but you know um but when like it, it's so graphic it's so yeah. women are so courageous like what mm -hmm. we go through and okay. not messy. just all of it and not just giving birth which we do kind of hear about but also you know just trying to get pregnant and the women who lose pregnancies and what you're supposed to how you're supposed to process that and how you're supposed to you know don't tell anyone you're pregnant until you're three months along but then most women who miscarry, it's happening much before then. So then you're not supposed to tell anyone that you're experiencing that. I mean, it's just this whole, so many things, so many it's things. So, it's so complex. There's this added layer because so much, so many of us now are having children later in life. So the reality mm -hmm. is that it's not a linear process. It's not an easy yes. process. And we're still transitioning into this insane thing of motherhood, which is, you know, studies have shown it's the most a dramatic transition a woman will ever undergo psychologically, emotionally, physically, um, yes. mentally, if if she does decide to be a mother and, and chooses to to do that. 
-hmm. And you are really living that while you wrote this, which strikes me as incredibly brave of you to kind of, you know, talk about the not so glamorous parts and, and, you know, maybe the difficult parts. Was that, was that challenging for you to bring that up or was that a way of you processing it? And I'm really interested, uh, that's the first part of the question, but I wanna hear about, you know, that transition and how it affected you as a writer and how it changed you as a writer, because that's, it's so significant. So maybe, sorry, let's- do I think it was definitely question. in some ways my most personal book, mm -hmm. you know, like Elizabeth is not me, I am not yeah. her, but but definitely her experiences of new motherhood are completely, you know, sort of pulled from my own and, um, and those of my close friends. Um, one of my best friends, you know, had a miscarriage in, in really the same way that, um, and the book's not all about miscarriage, just somehow we keep coming back to that, but in the same way that, um, the reality of, of, yeah, of, of in the same way that, that Nomi, um, Elizabeth's friend in the book does, you know, and so, um, I asked my best friend, you know, do you want me to take this out? She was like, no, I want you to even go deeper into it because we don't talk about these things enough, but so many of us experience them. And, um, you know, part of it too, I think is like women, a certain kind of woman, you know, is like, I'm gonna get myself to this place. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get this great education. I'm gonna get this great job. I'm gonna live in this city that I wanna live in. But like at the end of the day, this is, the one thing that's like you have no control over it like you decide you want to get pregnant and or maybe you don't even decide you want to get pregnant but you do or you know some many of my friends like when they decided they wanted to have a baby it either happened so fast that they were really upset or it, or it took so long that they were really upset I've, I don't think I've ever met anyone who was like I got pregnant at the exact perfect time that I wanted to get pregnant you know because it's like so life-altering of course it feels like, oh, this can't possibly be the right time for this, you know? Yeah. So um, I think that, and that's just in the category of women who are actually like wanting to be pregnant. So, right. you know, I think that that um, has been surprising for me and many of the women I know that like, and it is, and it's very, uh, it's very hard when all of a sudden you have, you know, friends in your life where that is becoming such a huge part of their world and the whole thing of like wanting to be happy for people, but you know, it being difficult, all of that. So, you know, I'm very interested in the private lives of women, but also the way that women kind of lift each other up and support each other. And this is, um, you know, one of many, I feel like ways that I've sort of looked at that um, throughout all my different books. Can we talk about that a little bit more? Because that's one one thing that you do so well throughout all of your books. Um, you know, female relationships are really central in your books. Mm -hmm. There, there are there are romances, there are family relationships, there are friendships, and really, it's the relationships that women have with each other. And what is it about the way women interact with each other? You, you know, in these various ways that interests you so much. I have to imagine it was influenced by um, some of the books that you loved growing up, some of the communities that you've been a part of. Um, what is it that, that, that draws you to the lives of women? So, you know, I guess in a, in a personal way, I guess I have a personal and a literary answer. The personal answer is um, I've been really blessed in life to always have 
wonderful female friends. I grew up in a neighborhood with six other girls my age and we're still very, very dear friends. Um, I went to a women's college and so I experienced that, you know, all women living together in the absence of men. And, and that was something that really kind of creates a certain type of friendship. And those are still my closest friends to this day. And um, after I graduated, I worked at a women's magazine for two years. So again, I saw no men for two years. And, um, and I'm still really close with a lot of the women I worked with there. I think um, I did an event recently where I said I have no male friends and my <laughs> wonderful friend, Mike Johnson, I don't know if he's watching, but he um, texted me and said, I'm really offended. You have no but, but he's my husband's best friend. So I'm like, I don't know if that, that really counts, but that's a perfect example. My husband's best friend, Mike Johnson, I don't know if he's watching now, but his wife and I, Melissa, dear, dear friend of mine too. When I, the first time I met them, Melissa and I were like, okay, let's dig in. And like, we have gone so deep in the years we've known each other, probably deeper than our husbands have, even yep. though they are like the closest friends in the world, because yep. women are, I think it's great. I'm so glad I'm not a man, but women are really allowed to mm -hmm. do that. And, and men, I don't know. I feel like every time, you know, you go to a party and it's like women in the kitchen talking about everything under the sun yep. men in the dining room talking about sports and it's like yes. oh god that sounds so boring um I, that's you know? It, you know it's so true i i have a friend who a, a male friend actually who we talked about how women form relationships face to face and men form relationships side by side which is like totally. in it, like activities versus like you know women we bond by sharing secrets by telling things about yes. ourselves that is such like, a brilliant way of putting like, it and that's like, exactly like my husband and his best friend of 40 years will be like, let, like, we'll go to the beach and they'll, they will like go swimming, you know, and like yep. the wife and I, we're just going to sit in our chairs and gossip. <laughs> that's what we're going to do, you know, and exactly right. Yeah, there's always an activity usually with ma male friendships and with yes. humans, like talking is the activity you're going to have, yes. coffee, but you, it doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter if it's coffee or wine or, you know, yes. what you're going to do. You're, you're going to talk. That's, that's what right. we do. <laughs> that's exactly yeah. right. And you do capture that so well in Friends and Strangers. And obviously, like these communities that you've been a part of. I also, I, I went to an all-girls high school um, nearby. Mm -hmm. Just full disclosure for all of you out there, um, the viewers. Uh, Courtney and I grew up almost in the exact same area. We, did, we you know, never met each other, but, uh, but we yep. were very, very close by. Um, yep. She knows the high school that, uh, that I went to. And uh, obviously, we all know Smith. Um, <laughs> and I think, I think that's something too, is that the single sex education yes. that I received, you know, I think, I think in some ways it's kind of a chicken or the egg situation because I do think that people who choose to go to women's colleges, it's like a pretty self-selecting bunch. Mm -hmm. It doesn't appeal to everyone. Um, but it very much appealed to me. Um, and that was partly because I was already really interested in feminism and, you know, women's literature. Um, and when I was at Smith, I, I really, I never felt, I never was taught, I guess, the way that a lot of writers are, that the canon or the important stories are the stories about men. Yes. I never had to unlearn that because I never learned that to begin with. And I feel extremely 
lucky about that. That's so interesting what you said, because I always, I always say the same thing that, you know, growing up, it, there was no question of I was going to be the, the class president or on the student council and I wasn't going to run against a guy. It was going to be another woman. Like we were the captains of the, the, the teams. We were the president, you know, the stars of the plays, which like, and it, <laughs> yeah. it, it really is a different environment. It just, it, it teaches you to, to expect leadership and expect, um, you know, power in a way, which is, which is really an interesting thing. And yet you don't shy away either from exploring sort of the darker side of these communities. I mean, there are a lot of groups that you touch on in this book. There is the all-female college that Sam attends. But there's also, you know, the Brooklyn, um, the Brooklyn mommy group online, and there's the book club, and there's, you know, these, um, the, these communities where maybe the, the best side of women doesn't come out either which is yeah. part of that. And like, and I guess, you know, your, your experience and I think my experience have been pretty similar and all female dominated spaces has been a really positive thing. Um, mm -hmm. But what are some of the, the pitfalls that might, might come up? Yeah, that I kind mean, of interest you? I think, you know, women, I guess the, the, the flip side of, um, the the bonding over secrets and and all of that is is that women are very often you know talking about each other that's just what we're doing we're always talking about each other and um that doesn't it's not always the best thing to do i suppose um uh and uh there's you know kind of the, these groups i mean i was really fascinated by the idea that like women are really congregating in these online spaces particularly on facebook because there's a whole thing with like message boards and being anonymous and all of that. That's really different. But like, if you're in a Facebook moms group for moms in your town or your neighborhood or moms who went to your college or whatever, uh, which I am, you know, you, you feel in some ways like you're in this really private mm -hmm. space and women, it just has amazed me what women say in those spaces about their frustrations with parenthood with their marriages whatever it feels like a very safe private space but it's actually like the most public you might as well just write that on a billboard you know so there's something really interesting about that tension but mm -hmm. I also think there's something um you know moms can be ridiculous and I love yeah. writing the funny ridiculous parts of that but also I think those groups are amazing because women are like just so generous with their time Mm -hmm. I mean, no one else but the mothers of young children care about these issues, but we all do care so intensely and anyone can go on at any time and say, what's the best bottle for a colicky right. baby and 25 women immediately give you an answer. It's like, it's so generous. They're really busy and they decided to do that, you know? So just this way that we help each other, I actually yeah. think is really amazing yeah, and I really agree. beautiful in the midst of all the ridiculousness. Yes, and I do appreciate that you do take, you know, a little tongue in cheek and you're you're not afraid to poke fun at, you know, the world that, you know, you and I both come from and and you know, the world in which we live in now, which is um, you know, which brings me to my next point of privilege, which, mm -hmm. you know, there is a privilege is central to this book and the complex mm -hmm. around it, like it's it's a and it's touched on in such a nuanced and you know full way, um, 
both Elizabeth and Sam are privileged in their own way. And they're both also, you know, feel like they're falling behind and they're they're not privileged in many ways. And there's a privileged difference and a power dynamic between them, not just as employer and older woman and, and you know, successful money and, you know, Sam starting out, but there's, you know, it extends out socially and they both have good intentions and they both have their blind spots and they both, you know, kind of mess up sometimes when, or maybe don't realize something that is, is inappropriate. Um, and we're in, we're all in this mass, in the midst of this massive social reckoning, which is rightfully very important. And we all should be asking ourselves, you know, what, what level of, we should all be, you know, coming to terms with our level of privilege and all of the, the issues that go with that. So it's a hot button issue. How, mm -hmm. how did you approach tackling it in this book? What, did it scare you at all? Was it, was it a little intimidating to take on or did you, you know, have some things that you knew you wanted to talk about and that you, this was the right space in which to talk about them or did it unfold kind of naturally? Well, I think that um, I was and, and still am and always have been really interested in the fact that there is this great spectrum of wealth and privilege, right? And, and we, most of us exist somewhere along the middle of that spectrum. Um, so, you know, and Elizabeth does say in the book, and I think it's true that no one ever thinks they have enough money. This is a problem with people who have a lot of money um, because this sort of, um, you know, many hoops people jump through to keep their money um, are often to the detriment of the larger society. But, um, you know, Elizabeth is coming from a world, I mean, I have a, a friend who was, who told me she had been a nanny for some very wealthy families, as I was too when I was younger, and she told me that, like, she nannied for this family, and they had a brownstone in Brooklyn, and, and they said something, essentially said, oh, you should see our friend's house, they have an elevator, and, and that was their way of saying, like, we're not that rich, we don't have an elevator in our brownstone, you know, whatever, we have to take the stairs, like, we're roughing it. And you know that's something they said to their own babysitter, and it's like um, just a certain cluelessness, right? But that, but somehow I think in our culture, on the one hand, we revere wealth and we revere, mm -hmm. you know, the idea of success and and being and having everything, but we also always want to talk about being self-made and having invested our own luck and success. Um, I think about it, you know, when you watch like a presidential debate and every single one of them is like, well, my great, great, great grandfather, you know, yes. was an immigrant and yes. worked in a shoe factory. And you're like, okay, but like your grandfather had 12 houses on Nantucket, you know, what I mean? whatever. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, so that feeling of almost needing to feel regular so here's elizabeth she has a trust fund she's extremely privileged but she doesn't really acknowledge that even to herself and although sam who's much more middle class graduating with a lot of student loan debt feels once she realizes that feels a bit duped by elizabeth you know sam is really in the middle and she i it was important to me to look at women who were not um, where she is on the spectrum and these women who she works with in the dining hall right. who are immigrants from El Salvador. You know, the thing I was thinking about was the concept of a safety net. 
So, you know, we don't all have trust funds, but, but if you are someone lucky enough to sort of exist in the middle, mm -hmm. then you, what you do have is this safety net most of the time mm -hmm. that you do know that you will probably never have to worry about spending a night on the street. You know, yeah. there's always somewhere you can go. Right. And, and education is a form of privilege. You know, citizenship yeah. is a form of privilege. Yeah. And these are things we don't necessarily think about. Yeah. Um, so as you said, with the blind spots, I think the blind spots come from in both cases, these women not really acknowledging their own privilege because they want to connect yep. um, with other people in their lives, but they are just not quite going about it the right way and not listening. You know, there's all, this Gloria Steinem always says that um, this story about how when she was in college, she was on a geology field trip and she saw this turtle that was about to like walk onto the road and she said, oh no, and she took the turtle and took it all the way back to the stream, you know, half a mile away. And then um, her professor said, what are you, why did you do that? What are you doing? And the turtles have to go uphill to dry land to lay their eggs. So you just set that turtle back so far. And she said, you know, that that life lesson for her in that was always ask the turtle, like ask the turtle what the turtle needs. And so, you know, that these women do not do that in this book and it leads to a lot of problems. <laughs> Yes, it does. <laughs> As it, I mean, and and it's all so very real and so very relatable. And in in many in many areas, um, going a little bit deeper, we obviously have you know, I want to talk about the setting a little bit because it's this upstate New York town that used to be a manufacturing hub, and that was where all the industry came from, and it's basically been abandoned. And I went to college in one of those towns in upstate New York that was essentially, you know, totally, totally abandoned. And other than the college, there really wasn't anything around. And it was so, the dichotomy was so stark between, you know, the students who tended to be, you know, very privileged, very wealthy and, and, mm -hmm. and the surrounding area. And there are so many areas like this across the country that yeah. have been abandoned and that are not, there's, there's almost no way you can really make a life for yourself. And you so eloquently illustrate this through George, um, through the character of George and his, you know, he is, George is um, Elizabeth's father-in-law for those of you who haven't read the book yet. Um, but, and he has lost his, his livelihood. Um, and he has sort of become obsessed with, as so many people have, the idea that the, um, that, you know, the, the little guy has been left behind. Um, and he illustrates this through a concept which you have, which is so lovely and so accurate called the hollow tree. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the hollow tree itself, the concept behind it and how, um, how where the idea for it came from and you know why this is so important for all of us as, as Americans to think about right now. It was actually, so my mother came up with this term several years ago yeah and um and she was describing how in all these different parts of her life you know she was witnessing the kind of hollowing out of american institutions and mm -hmm. how you know if you really looked you'd see there's no there there but it but from the outside at first glance it looks the same so for example you know okay um unemployment is low that's great but 
what about the fact that the gig economy makes it so that you might have three jobs and you're still not making a decent living? Yeah. You know, what about the fact that the gig economy makes it so that you do not have health insurance through mm -hmm. your employer when that's how, how America, Americans are told to have health insurance yeah. um, and all these other things. And I think that, you know, what has happened with COVID is we've seen how people were really hanging on by a thread in so many cases because there's tens of millions of Americans who lost their jobs in, you know, a day. And that sense of, um, you know, things look okay, but they're really not okay. You know, and now we're in this position where it's like, will millions of people be, be evicted from their homes or not? We don't know. Um, so that sense of how many people are living really close to the edge mm -hmm. and um, in a place like you mentioned in a college town, you know, oftentimes you do have, you have your campus, you have, mm -hmm. you know, fascinating intellectual minds coming through all the time, mm -hmm. famous writers are coming to speak or whatever it is. And then you have three blocks of beautiful vegan cafes and music venues and whatever, but beyond that, you just have people really struggling to stay afloat. Yes. Yeah, you, you do. You're absolutely right. It's, it's, um, you know, it's such a, a strange thing. And if you've never been, you know, in an area like that before, it's really, you know, a necessary awakening of this is how the rest of the world, you know, lives. This is how most of the country is. This is not, you know, um, Again, you and I both come from a t an area in Massachusetts where it's it's pretty lovely here. You know, like we're pretty <laughs> lucky. The yeah. uh, the the area around Boston is is a very um, educated, a very affluent, uh, very beautiful place. And mm -hmm. it's um, you know, and I know you've lived in Brooklyn for years, and I've lived in major cities as well. And when you're used to those different environments, where you know, there you're surrounded by every amenity you could ever hope for you you do sort of forget sometimes you know and it's it's important that we don't mm -hmm. um, but pivoting a little bit and speaking of uh, i want to ask you and this is not specifically there there is some of this in in friends and strangers because of course we have complicated family relationships as well um, elizabeth has a very dysfunctional family and you know her husband's family is is equally dysfunctional in a different way. It might be less um, less cruel, outwardly cruel, but uh, you know, or, or callous, maybe the better term. But mm -hmm. but there is you know dysfunction, and you write dysfunctional families so well while also making them incredibly charming. And, <laughs> you know, and you have a particular talent for. Um, in many of your other books as well that you've explored of the Irish Catholic big family dynamic that is so prevalent in, in the Northeast and uh, the area in which we grew up. But in general, um, you know, what about these, these family dynamics appeals to you? What is so fun about writing dysfunctional families? Because you do it so well. <laughs> It's funny because I, I realized at a certain point, because I am often associated with dysfunctional families, yeah. that um, it's like, you never hear about a novel about a functional family, you know, because it would be such a boring novel. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but the, the sort of, 
thing that one of the things that fascinates me the most about fiction is the fact that you are inside the heads of your characters mm -hmm. and you know as human beings we can find out a lot but we can never ever find out what's in someone else's head and heart even the people closest to us and um as a fiction writer you can kind of go there or you can at least imagine your way there and so i think um a family is just like the ultimate in a group dynamic where everyone experiences you know one thing the same moment in totally different ways or everyone remembers something in a totally different way or everyone's opinion of one person or one experience is so different and i love just like getting into that and seeing how so much of the experience we have as individuals comes just down to how we see the world as opposed mm -hmm. to what has actually just happened, you know? Um, so I think that is just like a very delicious, you know, thing to dig into as a writer, for sure. Oh, it's so fun. It's so fun. Do you, and, and you write the scene so well, how do you go about constructing a scene that is, you know, you, you write large scenes with lots of people very well. You write intimate scenes well too. But, you. you know, those big scenes where you have lots of things happening, even, you know, a dinner scene or, or something mm -hmm. like that, when you have four or five characters, uh, do you think cinematically about it? Do you sort of think of yourself like a, you know, a film director looking at it? How do you, how do you write your way into scenes like that? Well, I love writing dialogue, you know, that writing dialogue is probably my favorite, favorite thing. Um, you know, I had a writing student last year who said to me, I, I don't know if I'm really meant to write fiction because I find it really boring, the part where you have to say, okay, and she walked over to the sink and she poured a glass of water and yeah. da, da, da. And I'm like, no, you know, I think that is really boring. Maybe you know, but you have that. to do it because you yeah. have to, you have to create yeah. the world for the reader. Yeah. But so that's part of your job. But I think, um, but what's really fun is just like getting the rhythm of a conversation between people and what what is said and of course what goes unsaid or you know yeah. knowing as the reader and knowing as the writer oh, this person said this but what they really meant was that or what yeah. you know what did they hold back or whatever it might be um so i usually do start with just like straight up here's the conversation so in that yeah. way you know maybe it is almost like writing a script and then um fill in you know what are they actually doing what are they seeing what are they eating whatever it is mm -hmm to give, to paint the fuller picture. But um, often in a group scene, I do start with just the conversation between them. That's really cool. That's, that's a, a, a good way to approach it. They, and I guess more broadly, when you're entering into a project, so say, so friends and strangers, obviously we know where the idea came from and there was a loose concept, but did you then say, okay, I'm going, like, did the characters come first? Or did you say, you know, I want to write about this town in upstate New York, and this would be a great place to populate? You know, what what's your usual? Do you have a typical entry point into a novel? Is it through character, through plot, through setting? Um, what's what's the thing that sort of sparks you the most? I think it's always something different, to be honest. You know, but there's there's something, and it it will um, just kind of like take hold. And I think there are, I have a lot of ideas. You know, so over the course of time spent writing a book, whether it's two years or three years or four years, I'm always thinking of kind of what will I write next? And there, there are ideas that I'm like, that's amazing. And then three days later, I've forgotten it completely, or I've realized it's not amazing, or I've realized that it's from a totally different book that already exists or whatever. Um, I, 
I think if an idea just sticks with you and won't leave you alone, you know, then eventually you're like, okay, I hear you. I'll write it. And, um, you know, I generally just have like a very blurry sense of the overall, um, but I don't outline, I don't, you know, nothing really formal because I think for me, the characters very much do go down paths of their own. You know, I, I've, ha- I've talked to different fiction writers who, exper- who think that and those who think that's completely absurd. One of those but, divisive topics that I agree, yeah. I actually agree with you that I'm often surprised by yeah. characters. That I think yeah. they're real people who I'm trying to figure out the right answer rather than, you know. Yeah, like, and like, there's something really, fun about that you know for Mm -hmm. me if I were writing to an outline I I, that wouldn't I don't know it wouldn't be as exciting to me as okay I kind of know where they're going to start I kind of know where they're going to end but I really don't know what's going to happen getting them from A to Z Mm -hmm. because so much of your plot too is is based on character and based on on decision that's informed by psychological reflection and choice and you know all of that like your, your plots really are are very character driven Uh, somebody makes a choice and then xyz happens so that makes Mm -hmm. sense that you approach it that way yeah and sometimes as you're writing Mm -hmm. you know the a character sometimes as i am writing a character i'm figuring out who they are so you know it might come to a point where i say oh no i just realized she never would have done that thing she did in chapter three so now i have to go back and and you know sort of pull out all those threads and and make it something else Speaking of, uh, you mentioned you always have ideas. Um, can you tell us, are you, are you working on something right now? And if so, and I, I, and I say that understanding that <laughs> these are crazy times. So, you know, if you're not, is it because of, of COVID and, and how has COVID changed your, your typical process? Um, what's, mm. what's writing life okay. like these days, Courtney? <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> Well, I've had no childcare since mid-March, really, so um, so it's not really going that well. But um, <laughs> I, of I, course, uh, I know. Oh no! Did we lose you? We may have just lost Courtney for a second, but we'll we'll give her a minute and see if she pops back on. I know that there's. Uh, there were some technical difficulties going on today. Might be an internet issue. So we'll see if we can get her back on. Here she is, she's coming back on. Thanks guys for bearing with us. <laughs> there she is. <laughs> oh no, I'm so sorry. No, it's that's like dramatic and exciting. That was the most dramatic and exciting thing that's happened. No, what are you writing that. next? Yeah. And just, and then, then just like black. Like you're like, I'm not telling them. How dare you ask that? I'm leaving. I'm not um, I I have an idea. It's huh? sort of a ghost story. It takes place Ooh. in Maine. Nice. I know the characters. I've been thinking about them for many, many years, and someday I will have childcare and I will write it. <laughs> someday. We need calling all Sams out there. We need we need a good uh, we need we need some I, I mean I think a lot of women 
are are feeling that right now and a lot of I mean a lot of men too a lot of families obviously everybody's going through this together Mm -hmm. these are insane times and uh Mm -hmm. this is not normal so you know congratulations on making it through the days because that that's like I feel like if I make it through the day that's an accomplishment right now and I think we all need to pat ourselves on the back a little bit more and give ourselves you know a a bit of a bit of grace especially Uh, in the beginning with COVID um I, I really thought of it, it reminded me of the experience of having a newborn because mm. when you have a newborn, you know, people tell you it's really successful if you can do one thing a day. Yes. And the thing can be taking a shower or making yourself a sandwich. You know, it's just that it's, you're in a huge moment of transition and it's brand new to you. And, you know, that's going to take up every bit of your sanity and your you know so it's kind of it felt like that to me in the beginning now we're sort of like I don't know what stage we're at if we're in the middle for it I don't know where we are but now I guess it's more normal yeah we're in the we're in the this is still terrible but but we're we're living with it day to day but you're right it's a very traumatic shift and you had a big um you had a big life shift at the beginning of this whole process because of of this this whole um situation and you've said that your books are uh, are often self fulfilling prophecies. How how has your life uh, changed in in a way that is a little bit similar to to friends? It's crazy, friends? especially because we've now we're now in Massachusetts, but we were for four months um, uh, from March until just recently. We were in um, Albany, the suburbs mm. of Albany. And that's basically where Elizabeth lives in the book. You know, she yep. says, I, we're upstate, but it's not cool upstate. It's yep. <laughs> north of cool upstate. <laughs> and that's basically where we were. So it was so weird because it was like, I've never been in that part of the world. I've never thought about it really. And all of a sudden, oh, here we are. You know, Maybe so that feeling, um, it, it's very true that my books do tend to have some self-fulfilling prophecy. I have seriously pitched my agent on letting me write a book about people who win the Powerball, but she has said no. <laughs> I just thought well, maybe that will, I don't know, who knows? I feel like, <laughs> yeah, I would be like, I am gonna write a book about a, an author who becomes a bazillionaire and- Exactly, exactly. Come on, Courtney, write yourself that future. Right? <laughs> exactly, aim higher than just like random, you know, move to upstate New York, yeah. Although it's ironic that you're struggling with childcare right now, given this book, like okay. that's no kidding. That's like I'm that's like a that. little. It's almost like the universe taunting you a little. It's bit. so true. You're right. It's like <laughs> you think there's problems with this woman and her babysitter. Imagine what it would be like to have no babysitter. Oh, here, find out. You're right. Yeah, it's it's such a great book though. And here's a fun. Here's a little fun question because I've have just fallen in love with every character in every book that you write. Um, and I, I would love to know if this is something I always love to ask authors, if you could choose any of your characters over the course of any of your books to spend a day with and to hang out with, who would you choose and what would you do and where? I would choose Francis Garrity Mm. from The Engagements. Yes. Who is the only character I've ever written who's a real person. Um, and passed away long before I wrote about her, but she was this wonderful 
pioneer in the world of advertising who wrote the line, a diamond is forever. Yes. And when you write fiction, I, I noticed this as a reader too, when you write fiction about a real person, I think you cannot help but, but feel this like kinship with that person. Yeah. And I felt such a kinship with Francis. And um, I really want to know how, how much, how similar she really is to me as I, you know, if she really is as similar to me as I think she is, yeah. um, or how much of that I invented. Mm. Um, so I would love to know that. And, and in the process of writing that book and writing her, I met a woman named Deanne Dunning who was her successor at the advertising agency and much more representative of the kind of late 60s, early 70s, like first young woman to be a vice president at the agency and all of that. And um, I interviewed her for the book. She was then in her 70s. And then we just became really dear friends and started having dinner once a month. And uh, she, regretted that she hadn't taken Francis more seriously uh, at the time because to her, because Deanne was this young kind of hotshot um, at the time, she just saw Francis as this like old fuddy-duddy lady who was retiring and didn't really, so she, after she sort of got reacquainted with Francis through talking to me for my book, she was like, I really wish I could have asked her all these questions. And Sadly, Deanne passed away about a year and a half ago. And, you know, it's, it's a strange thing to have like a close friend yeah. who's 80 years old because, yeah. right, when, when you're 30, mid 30s, well, now I'm late 30s, but, um, you know, that, that kind of, like, you don't even really know where to put that. You know, you, you wouldn't really, I don't know. Like, I didn't say to people, like, my dear friend died because it's like, but she was 80. I don't know. It's just a weird, weird thing. And I would just, if I could, I would die to sit down. Maybe I will someday see them on the other side. I will have to die to sit down with Francis and Deanne and, and be part of that trio. That's really cool. I love that. I mean, I think that speaks to you. I'm actually not surprised that you're able to have a close friendship with an 80 year old because you, you also write women of all ages and you really, you really get into their psyches. Like you really, you know, it doesn't feel like somebody who's 40, 50 years younger. Good. Thank you. I'm glad. I think I, I think I am an old lady at heart. Honestly. <laughs> Aren't we all? It's the yes. grand <laughs> This has been so great. Courtney, thank you so much for being with us. Before we go, um, I just want to remember, remind everyone to please pick up Friends and Strangers. Um, and if you could, please do so from an independent bookstore. Um, there are some signed copies of Friends and Strangers at Books Are Magic in, uh, in Brooklyn, right? And Yes. And then also the Concord Bookshop, we want to give a shout out to. Um, and it, Courtney has said that she'll get some, some signed copies to them as well, if mm -hmm. there aren't any. And I know many of the local bookstores, if you're in Massachusetts, um, also do have signed copies because I got a signed one from uh, Titcombs down on Cape Cod. I know, isn't it so cute? So there are signed copies. Are they out have, I think they might have quite a few, actually. Titcombs is a great yeah and they're shipping there are uh you know what maybe they're not anymore hmm. they might have stopped that but I, i'm not sure 
but they're still, they're great. And if you're on the Cape, pick it up there. Um, thank you so, so much for being here. One last question before you go. Um, what's one book that you're either reading or because of COVID uh, hoping to read at some point <laughs> in the near future? <laughs> Um, I have to say the book, the book of the year for me, actually, weirdly, it's right here. Um, Writers and Lovers by Lily King. So good. It's so good. So good. So Phenomenal. Good. Love it so much. Everyone, if you have not read it, you need to go read it immediately. Just drop <laughs> everything. Go read it. Ignore your children. Lock yourself Ignore in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I loved the the locking your, herself in the bathroom scenes with Elizabeth. <laughs> like, I, I've locked myself in the bathroom so many times over the last three years. It's it's incredible. And the weird thing is, you will see this. Uh, it's like a lot of times, like you want to escape your children so much, and then you lock yourself in the bathroom, and then you just start pictures. looking at pictures of your children. Yep. Or you yep. put them to bed, and then them. you start looking at picture, their pictures, yep. and you're like. What is wrong with me like it's just it's an amazing it's biological it's so that we it's so that we you know like thank god for biology that it kicks yeah. in and, and helps you not kill your children because That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Courtney thank you so much this has been so much fun everyone, one more time congratulations on friends and strangers everyone pick it up um thank you thank you thank you for being here um on amb's frontliner friday we are have been thrilled to have you. I've loved this conversation. I would keep it going forever, but Me too. We'll thank you. Thank you guys so much. And uh, we will see you next Friday. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review to help other book lovers find us. We'll see you next time for our very exciting season two finale with the one and only George Saunders. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning. <laughs>